Egyptian, you go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome, so glad to have you in person. And everybody who's watching online, thank you for gathering with us today. Today, I wanna talk to you about how to kill your giants. We're gonna be continuing our study through 1st and 2nd Samuel that we are calling the Gospel According to David. And today, we're gonna be talking about probably one of the most beloved Bible stories in all of the scripture. Can anybody guess what it is? David versus? Goliath. Goliath. And that's how you have to say it. You have to say it like that, Goliath, right? Today, we're gonna be talking about David versus Goliath. And even if you didn't grow up in church, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the way that this metaphor is used across culture. It's, it's the story of an underdog. It's the one who nobody thought could achieve it, went ahead and did the impossible. We use this metaphor in sports. We, we talk about David versus Goliath. It's the Cinderella story of the final four. It is any team that goes up against the Patriots or Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, they're the underdogs and he is Goliath. It's the story of the Super Bowl. It's the story of the World Series. It's David versus Goliath. You probably even use this whenever you were thinking about that bully who would beat you up in fifth grade and take your lunch money. When you're on the playground, you're like, it's David versus Goliath, right? We know this metaphor in culture. We also know it in the church. So for those of you who grew up going to Sunday school, you probably had a flannel graph with your Sunday school teacher, had David versus Goliath. If you were Baptist, maybe at Awana's, you had a special theme. Or if you were you know, Pentecostal like me, raised in the Assemblies of God, you went to Royal Rangers. Anybody go to Royal Rangers in here? One, two, per okay, cool. We got some people. Everybody else like Royal Rangers, Missionettes, Boys and Girls Mission Club. I got no clue what you're talking about. Don't worry. We'll pray for you later. But we all know the story of David versus Goliath. What I want to do today is I want to present to you David and Goliath in a way that maybe you haven't heard it before. Because nine times out of 10, the way that the story of David and Goliath is taught is, hey, you can overcome and you can do hard things. So whatever obstacle is your way, that's just a giant. You can defeat your giant. You can do it. And so if you have a big bill you need to pay, it's not just a big bill. It's a giant bill. Right As electricity costs are going up, it's a giant electricity bill. Oh, that's my Goliath in life. Or if you need to lose 40 pounds, you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This giant, I'm a giant, right? I can slay the giant. And it typically becomes self-help or self-motivation or positive thinking about how we de defeat our giants. And I want you to know that on one part, that is absolutely true. If you remember back to week one as we learned this series, there's two views in which you can interpret Old Testament narrative, and that's what First and Second Samuel is. It's an Old Testament narrative. So there's two different types of perspectives on interpreting the text. The first perspective is what is a historical ethical view, which means how does this story in the Bible apply to my life? What are the practical applications that I can draw from scripture to help me to live the life that God has created me to live? And nine times out of 10, that's the way David and Goliath is taught with a historical ethical view. But if you remember, is that there is more to the story than what we read on the surface. There's a second point of view that we need to hold in tension, and that is what is called the historical redemptive view. 
If you're new to church, here's what you got to understand, is that the Bible that you're holding in your hands is not just a book. It's actually a library book, 66 books from 40 different authors written on 30 different countries in three different languages on three different continents spanning thousands of years. There's 66 books in the Bible, but there is only one story. There is only one hero. There is only one message, and that's Jesus. So from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, it's actually giving us one giant story known as the story of redemption. And so as we study this, what we're going to see is both the historical ethical and we're going to see the historical redemptive, how we apply it and who Jesus is so we can begin to live for him. We're going to see David and Goliath in a whole new perspective. And here's the big idea that we're going to run through today. And if you're taking notes, pull out your note sheet. We're a note-taking church. Write this down. If your problems are not natural, they're supernatural. If your problems that you're facing, if the things that you're going through, if they don't make sense, if they don't seem normal, if they're not natural, maybe they're not unnatural, maybe they're actually supernatural. There's something more going on in the story behind the scenes. Because here's the reality is that giants are not natural. If you look around the world today, you probably tell me, you're like, Byron, this is one of the reasons why I doubt the Bible, because giants are not natural. Giants are not normal. When was the last time you saw a giant? Giants do not just exist. And so some people look and they say, well, giants are not natural. And I would agree with you. Giants are not natural. Giants are supernatural. Where do giants come from? We see it in the book of Genesis. The first time a giant has ever mentioned is known as the Nephilim. In Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim are fallen angels, evil demons, who come down and have sex with women, and their offspring produce giants. That's Genesis chapter 6. That's not natural. That is supernatural. And so from the very beginning, what we see in the story of giants through the Old Testament is that they are demonically energized, supernatural beings that oppose God's people from Genesis chapter 6. But they show up after the flood as well. We see them in the Amalekites in the book of Exodus. They're blocking the, the children of Israel. They're coming against them as they're wandering through the wilderness, trying to enter into the promised land. They repeatedly go up against giants. And then we see them again in Joshua. We see the Amalekites as they go in to inherit the promised land. What do they say? They say, we can't do it. We're never going to do it. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They are giants. Giants are not natural. Giants are supernatural. They occur over and over again in the Old Testament. And the goal of giants is always to prevent, to stop, or to block God's people from receiving the promises that God has for their life. And some of you would say, but giants don't exist today. Maybe not in the natural, but they do exist in the supernatural. That many of you, the problems that you're facing in your life, you've tried to explain them, you've tried to justify them, you've tried to figure them out, and it just doesn't make sense. And the reality is, it's because you're trying to fight them in the natural when you need to begin to fight them in the supernatural. Because the truth is, is that we all have giants. We've all fought giants. We all are fighting giants. And if you haven't fought a giant, well, guess what? You're going to fight one pretty soon because in life, we all fight giants. And what my hope and my goal, my prayer for us today is that way we would begin to see the situations in our life with supernatural perspective.
perspective, that we would begin to see them not just in the natural, but in the supernatural, that not all of life's problems have a practical solution. Sometimes they need prophetic, divine revelation, that not everything is just normal. Some things are what God wants to do to open and change and shift the perspective that you have. The truth is, is there is good and there is evil. There is light, there is darkness, there is God, there is Satan. And there is an enemy that stands against you. We see this in the book of Ephesians chapter six. Paul writes and he says this. He says, for we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against rulers and cosmic powers and present darkness and spiritual forces in heavenly places. If you were to step back and you were to see the giants, the problems, the situations in your life, you would look at them and you would recognize that they are giants. But here's the good news, is that through the story of David and through the story of redemption, we actually learn how to kill our giants. How many of you are tired of getting beat up? How many are tired of being worn out? How many of you are tired of being sick and tired all the time? And you say, today is the day that I want to fight my giant. I don't want to run for my giant. I want to defeat my giant. I want to kill some giants. We got some giant slayers up in the house this morning. Let me hear all my giant slayers today. Well, here's what I'm going to do today is I want to teach you how to kill a giant. And so the first thing that you need to do if you want to learn how to kill a giant, number one, is you have to define your giant. Look how it starts here. In verse one, chapter 17, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. What is it? Okay, it's not playtime, it's wartime. And they assembled at Soko in Judah, and they pitched camp in Ephesus and Damum between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew their battle lines to meet the Philistines. At this moment, Saul is still king. David was anointed as the future king, but he's in a season of preparation and a season of waiting. God has removed his hand from Saul, but Saul is still sitting in the position of, of king. And so Saul is leading this army against the Philistines that have continued to confront the people of God. And then here's what it says in verse three. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites of the other. So there's one on one side, there's the Israelites on the other, and there was a valley between them, okay? It is the rally in the valley, baby. There's gonna be a war. And a champion, an undefeated, three-time, five-time, 17-time, woo, heavyweight champion of the world. His name, Goliath. You gotta say it like that. Who was from Gath, came out of the Philistines' camp. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice the intense detail that Samuel goes into describing or to defining the giant. His height was six cubits and a span. That's nine foot six inches tall. And he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's roughly 200 pounds just in his armor. And his legs were bronze greaves and a bronze javelin were slung on his back. His spear shaft was that like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearing the his shield buried went ahead of them. So look, just the tip of his spear weighed 25 pounds. Like he's throwing darts like dumbbells. Like that's how, that's how strong that's how giant, that's how much strength 
Goliath has. It goes into great detail defining the giant. Goliath stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel, why do you come and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? That was his first mistake. He thought they were servants of Saul when reality is they were servants of God. He says, servants of Saul, choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, then we will be your subjects. And if I overcome him and kill him, then you will be our subjects and you will serve us. And the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and the Israelites, they were dismayed and they were terrified. I want you to notice the amount of detail that Samuel gives into defining the giants. He goes and talks about his height. He's nine foot six inches. It talks about his strength, that just the, the armor that he wore weighed 200 pounds. He goes and he talks about his, his thighs, how massive and big his thighs were. He's got the quads of the gods. Like that's how strong this man is. And he goes and talks about his, his weaver's beam of a javelin. It talks about his sword. It talks about his helmet. It talks about all of the different things. The tip of his spear was 25 pounds. He's like, I mean, that's how much my daughter Ruth weighs. I mean, could you imagine just using a child as a weapon? Like, that's, that's how massive Goliath is. But here's what I found is so interesting. Not only is he defining his giant, but for the first time in all of the Bible, it actually names a giant. I told you already, giants have shown up all throughout the Old Testament, but never until this moment did a giant ever have a name. It talks about the Philistines, the Nephilim, the Amalekites, but it never tells us the name of a giant until 1 Samuel chapter 17, and then it tells us the name of the giant, and his name is Goliath. In your life, the giants that face you, that come against you, here's what you need to do. You need to name them. You need to call them out. You need to call them for what they are. You need to name your giants. And here's the reason why. It's because you will never defeat what you do not define. For some of you in your life, the reason why you're living in a constant state of defeat is because you never name the giants that you face. You always excuse them. You justify them, you downplay them, you might give them a pet name, you might give them a nickname, but you don't actually call them by their name. You need to begin to call your giants by name. What is a giant? A giant is, is sin. And the reason why you struggle with continual sin in your life is because you never actually name the sin that is in your life. So you keep going around in circles, fighting the same battles, because you never define the giant, and that's the reason why you never defeat the giant. In the book of 1 John, it tells us that we need to confess our sins to one another. What does that mean? It means you don't just say, I had a bad day. No, you need to confess the sin. Say, I didn't just make a mistake. No, you need to confess what that mistake was by naming the sin. And then the moment you name it, it no longer has power over you. If you want to defeat the giant, you have to define the giant. That's why when people say, hey, I made a mistake, I get it. But that's not just a mistake, that's a sin. You say, oh, I had a bad day. No, no, you've had, a, you've had a series of bad days, and that's called continuing and living in the sin. You need to name it for what it is. So, so let's just get honest. Let's just get real. You came to church. Let me be your pastor and step on some toes. 
Okay, here's, here's what it is. Listen, name it. So don't just say, I had too much to drink last night and the last week. Just say, you know what? I'm an alcoholic. Don't just say, oh, I, I, have, I, I, I don't know how to cope, and so I use drugs and alcohol to help relieve the stress. Just say, I'm an addict. Call it for what it is. The moment you name it is the moment it loses power over your life. So don't just say, oh, hey, I hooked up with this girl. No, say, I committed sexual sin. Don't say, I'm living with my boyfriend. Say, hey, our marriage bed is defiled. Because that's what the Bible says. Don't just say, oh, you know, I struggle with pornography. You don't struggle because you don't fight. Every time the temptation shows up, you fold like a lawn chair. It's degrading and disrespectful to women. Just say it and call it for what it is. Don't step around it. Don't hide from it. Don't justify it. Don't pet your giant. Define your giant so you can begin to defeat your giant. <laughs> call it for what it is. It is a giant that is preventing you from stepping into the life that God has promised for you. And the reason you walk around in circles living an undefeated life is because your giant goes undefined in your life. There's, there's, there's sinful giants. Some people struggle with habitual sin. Other people, their, their giant is more just spiritual warfare. It's spiritual oppression. That there is an enemy that hates you and wants to stop you from accomplishing the things that God has created you for. There's a real spiritual oppression. So for us as a church, our church has been growing. I mean, every single week, we're, there's more people coming. We're adding chairs, overflow. We're, we're fixing to have to move to three services as a church. I mean, God is really blessing this place. I mean, everything from serve teams to small groups to, to, to child dedications, baptisms, everything, including our tithes and offerings, are just increasing. But here's what I've noticed around the staff is that we are all discouraged. Your staff, the pastors here at the church, discouraged, tired, anxious, all the time. And we go on vacation, we come back and we don't feel any rest. And so I'm like, well, what's the deal? I was talking with my counselor the other day and he said, well, are you taking care of yourself? Yes, I'm doing all the things. I'm diet, exercise, right? I'm sleeping well, making sure I'm having plenty of family time. I slept 10 hours last night and I woke up even more tired than I was and I went to bed and my back hurts. And he said, well, if you're doing all the things, then maybe if it's not natural, maybe it's a supernatural attack on your life. And so I was like, oh my gosh, it took me three months to remember I'm in a spiritual war here. And so what I did is this, I, I immediately just cleared my entire calendar, spent three, three hours first thing in the morning this week, just laying on my belly and praying and doing spiritual warfare. And then all of a sudden the oppression lifted off of my life and we went and had staff meeting and then everybody went and got sushi and played arcade games. It was an amazing day. <laughs> And we had so, because the, the moment we pressed into the warfare, that giant over the staff began to, to lift because there's a spiritual pressure. Now listen, I'm not the guy who finds a demon behind every bush. That, that's just not who I am, right? But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that demons are real, that Satan is real, and that he hates you, and he wants to take you out. Like, I don't believe that there's like a, a coffee demon who, in the morning when you drink your coffee, you're like, oh, that's hot. Oh, I heard the demon hiss at me when I burn my tongue. Like, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. Like, I, I don't believe that there's like a, like a Michelin demon who, when you're driving out of tents, just poking holes in people's tires, saying, this is what's going to get them. I know it is. I know it is. But here's what I do know is that when you get the flat tire, the enemy, he wants to twist and he wants to manipulate your thoughts into giving up and thinking like you're defeated. Right. The battle is in, is in your mind. 
There is a spiritual war that many people have. And here's, here's, what, I, here's what I want you to know is that, is that depression is very real. Anxiety is very real. There are people who have chemical imbalances and there is a, a need for that. But here's what I also know is true, is that a doctor can treat your body, that a, a, a psychologist can treat your mind, but only God can give freedom to a person's soul. And if all we do is trust in doctors and counselors, we're going to miss out on the great physician and the counsel that comes from the Holy Spirit. You need all three of them active in your life. And so while, yes, depression and anxiety are real, but when I survey across the nation and I see 10-year-olds on ADD medication with OCD and anxiety, when one out of four of uh, adults are struggling with chronic depression, when I turn on my social media and all I see is people talking about trauma and pain and, and triggers and I see all of the grief and all the pain that people are going through, it has to show me that there's something supernatural that has a grip over God's people. This entire nation, an entire generation who are suffering, there is a supernatural oppression that is over our nation and is attacking our children. There's something more that is happening than just chemical imbalance in people's brains. There is a spiritual aspect that we have neglected. It's not natural, it's supernatural. It's not natural for billions of people to be struggling with the same thing, which means there's a supernatural component that many of us have overlooked. So there is a, a, a spiritual oppression, there is a sinful oppression, and then lastly, we just need to call a giant for what it is. It's a cultural oppression. First John says, there's three enemies that we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So when it comes to the principalities and the powers that we face, we need to stop nicknaming giants. For the last 20 years, the church has been like the Israelites hiding on one side of the valley, too afraid to come out and call a giant for what it is. We call it seeker-sensitive movement. We call it, we don't want to step on any toes. We don't want to hurt any feelings. We don't want to get engaged in cultural wars. We don't want to get political. But let me just tell you that these are not political issues, but these are biblical issues that have political implications. And for 20 years, the church has been too silent to confront the giants that are in our culture. So what are the, the giants that we're talking about? Let's just name them and call them what they are. Abortion is not a choice. Abortion is murder. It's a giant the church is afraid to talk about. But let's stop, let's stop using Orwellian doublespeak to try to do what God says, where he says, woe to those who call evil good. Yeah, yeah. Let's not just call, let's not come up with a nickname for our giant. Let's define it. Abortion is murder. LGBTQ community is not a community. It is a religion. Right. And whenever sex becomes a religion, children will become the sacrifices. Right. Yes. Come on. Gay marriage homosexuality, transgenderism are not God's intention nor his design for life. God said he made us male and female. And that marriage between a man and a woman, anything outside of God's design is not God's intention for us as believers. Let's not just call them alternative lifestyles. Let's call it what it is, it's sin. Let's call giants giants, and let's not call them by any other name. Critical race theory is not lifting up the voice of the oppressed. It is cultural Marxism. It is godless, and it is destroying an entire nation of people. Everywhere it's been implemented, it has failed. 
Let's think about what Disney and Hollywood are, are doing when it comes to our kids. It is not representation, it's indoctrination, and it is grooming children. Let's not just look around and say, oh, hey, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. Stop cowering to giants, stand up and define the giant and start calling giants what they are. And listen to me, fear of man is a sin not to be apologized for, but to be repented of. Fear of man is a giant in the hearts of churches, of pastors, and Christians in the pew. And because pastors are too afraid to talk about this, the people in the pew are ignorant of it. And listen, if Satan can get the pulpit, he can get the pew. And if a giant can stop the leaders from standing up in courage and boldness, then the rest of y'all be like Israelites running away and hide well. Stop cowering to giants. Stop nicknaming giants. Stop running from giants. Define the giant. Because the moment you define it is the moment that you will be able to defeat it. So, so what is a giant? Let me help you explain this a little bit. Number one is giants, they will discourage you. Look what it says here. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and his Israelites, they were dismayed and they were afraid. Fear is demonic. First John says this, for I did not give you a spirit of fear. That means fear is a spirit. And what devil wants to do is he wants to discourage you. He wants you to think that you're a failure and this is the way that it's always going to be and you're never going to make a difference and you're always going to be disappointed and you're always going to be living in discouragement. That's what giants do. They discourage. So what situation in your life has you discouraged? Like nothing is ever going to change. That's how you define a giant. Number two, they, they defy God. Look what he says here. I defy the armies of Israel. They're not just defying you. Giants defy God who loves you. Listen, here's an illustration. I, I, I'm a dad. I'm a 36-year-old man. There's not a lot of you could say or do that could, that could hurt me. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But if you want to hurt me, what do you do? You come after my kids. See, God is a father. And Satan knows that he can't attack the father and so what he's going to do, he's going to come after his kids. So every time you're being attacked by the enemy, every time you're struggling, every time you're giving into temptation, I want you to know this, is that the devil, he knows that he can't attack God, so he's going to attack you. He's not defying you. He's defying the God who loves you. Number three, create doubt in the heart's of the believer. What situation creates doubt? As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled in great fear. A giant feels impossible to overcome. This is the way it's always going to be. This is my lot in life. This is my cross to bear. This is the thorn that's in my side. This is just who I am. Nothing's ever going to change. My dad was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. My mom was living in poverty, paycheck to paycheck. I'm going to live in poverty, paycheck to paycheck my entire life. This is just the way that it is. It doesn't have to be. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. But the devil wants you to believe it. The giants in your life want you to believe it, that nothing in your life is ever going to change. This is the way that it is always going to be, and you are powerless against them. And they run away afraid and discouraged. It tells us they create doubt they feel impossible to overcome. What situation in your life feels impossible to overcome? My marriage will never change. My kids are prodigals and they'll never come back to the church. 
The person that I, my friends, they're just too far from Jesus. No one's ever going to be able to reach them. Creates doubt in your heart that God wants to do something miraculous in your life. That's what giants do. Number four, giants, they don't go away. Look what it says here. For 40 days, 40 days, the Philistine came morning and evening. Some of you, for, for years, every single morning you wake up, all of a sudden, boom, you're hit with the same thoughts. You're hit with the same depression. You're hit with the same anxiety. You're hit with the same temptations. The moment your feet hit the floor, the enemy's there just to be able to greet you, to defeat you. And then it weighs on you all day, morning and evening. It never goes away. That's a giant that is in your life. For some of you right now, I, I, just, I just sense that it's like your brain is exploding. You're like, I thought these were just normal. You're like, no, 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 this is not normal for the children of God. Because when God speaks to you, he doesn't tell you you're worthless. He doesn't tell you you're pathetic. He doesn't tell you a sinner and that nothing in your life is ever going to change. Those are not the words that come from your father. That is not the voice of the spirit that is encouraging you. There is one accuser of the brethren. His name is Satan, and he is coming against you day in and day out. The situations that many of us are facing in our life are not natural, which means they must be supernatural. And now, for the first time in your life, you have the ability to define the giants. And here's the good news is the moment that you define them is the moment that you begin to defeat them. First Samuel defines the giant. Number two, he tells us how to defeat the giant. Look what he says. As you jump down to verse 42, it says, he's Goliath. He looked over at David and he saw that he was little more than just a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. I want you to know the enemy despises you. Anytime you get a little bit of courage, he despises you. The moment you get healthy, he despises you. The moment you start walking in purpose, he despises you. The moment you begin to feel an increased opposition in your life is the moment you know you're going the right direction. Because he wouldn't want to come against you unless he knew that you were a threat to him. Even though David was a 12-year-old shepherd boy, this nine-foot-six Goliath despised him because he knew he was a threat. The devil is threatened by you as well. The moment you stand up, the moment you defy him is the moment you have the ability to begin to defeat him in your life. Here's what it says. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. David was a gangster. <laughs> He's from the south side of the kingdom, amen? I love it. He says, uh, this very day I'll give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead. He fell face down on the ground. Let's go, David. I want you to notice something here. It says in verse 48, it says that he ran quickly to the battle. That's right. 
He didn't run from the battle. He didn't ignore the battle. He didn't wait three weeks hoping the battle would go away. No, what did he do? It says that he engaged it. He ran towards it. He faced the giants in his life. Taking notes, write this down. Unresolved conflict never solves anything. If there is conflict in your life, it's not going to go away by you ignoring it. It's not going to go away by you pretending it doesn't exist. Unresolved conflict never solves anything. If there's conflict in your heart, you need to address it. Right now, today, if there's conflict in your mind, you need to address it. You need to deal with that today because unresolved conflict never solves anything. If there's conflict in your soul, if there is sin in your life, you need to address it, you need to confront it, you need to face it, you need to run towards it so that way you can begin to defeat it. Think about conflict in your marriage. Husband and wife fighting. Does unresolved conflict make your, better, your, your marriage better or worse? It's worse. Think about it in a relationships at work, conflict between you and your boss or an employee. Does that make a healthy work environment or a toxic work environment? Toxic. And the longer you ignore it, the more toxic that relationship's going to be. Family, friends, kids, unresolved conflict never solved anything. And if we know that to be true for us personally, then why do we think it would be any different spiritually in our life? If there's unresolved conflict, you need to address it, you need to confront it, and you need to deal with it quickly. This is why it's so important for us to face our giants head on. We do not excuse giants. We do not justify giants. We do not tolerate giants, throw parades for giants. We do not celebrate giants. What do we do to giants? We kill giants. I love one of my favorite quotes comes from John Owen. He wrote a book called called Precious Remedies Against the Devil's Devices. It's a, from the 1600s. He's a Puritan, and, and he writes this, and he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you don't face your giant, your giant will face you. If you don't attack your giant, your giant will attack you. If you don't kill your giant, your giant will kill you. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of heaven and hell. Lives are on the line. Souls are at stake. Eternal treasures are on the line. This is more than just what we see. This is a battle in what we do not see. Life is short. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. You need to face your giants today because unresolved conflict doesn't solve anything in your life. And one of the most foolish things I hear from people is this. I'm just not ready foolishness. Can't tell you how many young men I meet. And they're like, Byron, I was raised in the church. I know the truth. I believe in God. I even got faith tattooed on my arm. But you know, there's just some things I'm not ready to give up yet. Maybe when I get married and have a few kids, when I'm 30, I'll finally come back to church when I'm sowed my oats and I'm ready to settle down. You know what that is? Foolishness. Foolishness. Do not put off till tomorrow what you know that you're supposed to do today. Unresolved conflict. It doesn't solve anything in your life. Or if you just think about the words from the prophet Jeremiah, today is the day of salvation. When you hear the word of God, do not harden your hearts, but repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you face your giants. Today is the day you bring conflict to Goliath. Today is the day you kill the giants in your life. Not tomorrow, not next week, not three years from now, but today because unresolved conflict never solved anything. 
That giant will just continue to defeat you. And if you don't kill your sin, then eventually your sin, it will kill you. So what do we do? How do we fight our giants? Four things. Number one is we remind ourselves that the battle is the Lord's. Look what it says here. It says, all those gathered will know that it is not by sword nor spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. I want you to understand something, is that David is not the hero of this story. Nine times out of ten, that's the way it's taught, that David is the hero. David is not the hero of this story. Who wins the victory? It is God who gives the victory. David is just being obedient to the things that God has told him to do. And it's when we are obedient to God do we begin to experience the blessings that God has for our life. David is not the hero. God is the hero. It is God, the Holy Spirit, that energizes him, that empowers him, and that sends him to accomplish what God has already told him shall be done. You remember the battle that you face. It belongs to God. So in your marriage, it belongs to the Lord. In your finances, that battle belongs to the Lord. In your temptation, I want you to know that battle, it belongs to the Lord. It is not your reputation that is on the line. It is God's reputation that is on the line. And you just step out in obedience and you watch him fight the victory for you. The battle belongs to God. Number two, we rely on spiritual Weapons. I love this. Look what he says. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle. He did not delay to meet him. Reached into his bag, he takes out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. In the previous verses, it goes into about 15 verses of detail defining the giant, explaining this is how tall he is. This is how strong he is. This is how big his thighs are. It goes into all this detail, defining the giant. And then it says just one little verse about David. He reached into his bag, he pulled out a stone, and he got a sling, and he killed the giant dead. That's it. And here's why. It's because spiritual weapons are greater than the world's weapons. The world's going to try to give you all these different things. I got this. We got this. This is up what's against you. This is why you should be afraid. This is what's trending this week on social media. You're going to find this, and this person's going to say this, and it's going to come and try to hit you from all different directions to make you feel intimidated. And God says, pull out your stone, get out your sling, and go to battle. Because we need to rely on the spiritual weapons that we have. So what are some of the spiritual weapons that we have? Well, Paul tells us, what the armor of God looks like in Ephesians chapter 6. It goes into detail defining the armor of Goliath. Elsewhere, you can discuss in your small group, but it talks about the armor of Saul. But instead of the armor of Goliath, instead of the armor of Saul, us as believers, we need to be equipped and ready wearing the armor of God at all times. What is the armor of God? It says this, finally, be strong in the Lord. I want you to know as Christians, you can be strong in the Lord. You are not a coward. You are not to be fearful. You are not to be timid. You are not to be silenced, but you are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might by putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand. There are some times we need to take a stand. You need to stand. I saw megachurch pastors over the last several weeks with Roe v. Wade, and they say, we don't take a stand on issues. We like to walk with people. Can I just tell you, you can do both. You can do both. 
You can do both. It's one of the things about this world is that when people love lies, truth looks a lot like hate. And you can be compromising and you, or you can be compassionate, but you can't be both. We're to be compassionate without compromising the convictions that we have as believers. We are to take a stand on truth, on the gospel. We are to take a stand on what is right and what is wrong. Take a stand. And after you've done all the stand and you're feeling a little bit tired, what do you do? He says to stand again. To stand against the schemes of the devils. Because if it's not natural, it's what? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces that are in heavenly places. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, he tells you one more time. If you missed it, the first five times, he tells you to do it again, to stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And to have shoes for your feet, having the readiness of the gospel of peace. Like Nazi Germany and the Taliban, the enemy isn't going to surrender on its own. The enemy is not going to apologize. And sometimes the only way to bring about peace is to engage in spiritual war. Listen, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. You need to understand that. People are not our enemies. When it comes to culture, when it comes to friends or family bosses, when it comes to people who are relationally at odds with you, if, you're, if your mother or your father have, 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 have traumatized you, if your siblings are, 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 are strained from you, I want you to understand something. Is your brother is not your enemy. Your sister is not your enemy. Your parents are not your enemy. Those who are deceived by the things that are happening in this world, they are not your enemy. It is the God of this age that has blinded them. They are captives. They are victims. They are the ones who are being deceived. There is a spiritual war that is happening behind the scenes in people's lives. And you have an authority authority that has been delegated to you by God to do war and to tear down strongholds in other people's lives. But hear me on this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters or neighbors. Our wrestle, our battle is in the supernatural. It is a heavenly battle that we fight. And so we rely on spiritual weapons. He tells us what these weapons are. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take upon the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The two greatest weapons that David had was a stone and a sling. And to a giant, that looked foolish. To everybody who was walking, watching or walking around, that looked foolish. But you know what? It took down the giant. And the greatest weapons you have, according to Ephesians chapter 6, is your Bible time and your prayer life. And some people will say, that looks foolish. But the word of God is a sword in your hand. And the prayers of the saints, they're righteous and they availeth much. Some people say, you really believe in the Bible? It doesn't make any sense. But when you see the giants that I'm facing, it makes total sense. Will you really believe that you're going to pray? You're going to send your thoughts and prayers? Yes, I am going to pray. I am going to do battle. I am going to do war because I know that is prayer that unlocks the power of God in the life of a believer. And a sword and a stone may not look like much, but a Christian with a Bible open and their hands raised in prayer will conquer and defeat any giant that comes against them in their life. You need to rely on some spiritual weapons in your life. Number three is to realize that 
The battle is an opportunity for God's glory. Here's what he says. All those who are gathered, they know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all into your hands. Write this down. Is that the biggest test in your life will become the greatest testimony of your life. The biggest test in David's life was what? Was fighting a giant. But as we're going to see as the weeks go on, is that became the testimony. They'll say that Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And here's what you also need to know is that up until this point, nobody had defeated a, a, a giant. The Israelites were on the side. They were afraid. They were cowering. They were scared. But the moment David took down a giant, here's what we see. Through the rest of First and Second Samuel, there were four of Goliath's brothers. And by the end of Second Samuel, giant killing becomes normal. You may think you're in a test, but here's what God wants to show you is that your test is a testimony of his glory. And he says, before God and everybody, they will know there is a God in Israel today. And for you, that trial, that temptation, that struggle, that, that depression, anxiety, that trauma, everything that has happened to you in your life, I want you to understand something. Is that God may not have caused it, but if you surrender it to him, God will use it. And the test that you have gone through will become a testimony to help others as they go through it as well. When I was going through my addiction and entering into my sobriety, somebody told me, uh, I've been sober now for nearly 15 years. Someone told me this. They said, here's, here's what you need to know, Byron, is that doctors and clinic and, and friends and family members, when they look at a man in a pit, they try to figure out, oh, how do we get this man out of the pit? Do we get a ladder? Do we get a rope? And they start theorizing, and they write books about how to get people out of pits. And there's another person in an addiction, and they just jump right into the pit. And they say, well, what are you doing jumping in the pit? Don't you know it's dangerous? And the, the person says, I've been in the pit before. I know the way out. It's the same way in your life. Those of you who overcome, those of you who are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, the ones who know how to kill giants can help other people kill the giants that are in their life as well. And when you jump in that pit with another person, when you're standing in line in battle with another person, when you're rank and file with other brothers and believers and sisters in the church, in the faith, you can teach them how to kill some giants because you've killed some giants yourself. Your greatest test will become the greatest testimony of your life. As a pastor, I, I get to witness this all the time. I mean, just this week, I had, I had lunch with two men. One man I sat down with, I met him, I said, hey, how long have you been married? He said, he said, altogether, 22 years. I said, altogether? That means there was a gap in there. He said, yes, there was a gap. For about five years, me and my wife were divorced. And I went and I cheated on her and I ran from her and Five years later, the Lord grabbed my heart. She pursued after me. And here we are today, remarried with a family. That's a man who killed a giant. I had another, had another lunch with a, with, a, with a man this week. Four years we've been praying for this guy. Four years we've been praying. And two weeks ago, he gave his life to Jesus. I baptized his daughters. But God has answered that prayer. 
And you know, in that moment, that family changed. God's brought the husband and wife together. He's given the, their girls a daddy who loves Jesus, which is going to change the trajectory of their life forever. Don't tell me what my God won't do. Don't tell me that her prayers, that wife's prayers, went unanswered because she prayed for seven years. And in one Sunday, God cashed in every single one of those prayers. That's the God that we serve. I mean, I could just tell you stories about, about, about couples, uh, 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 women with infertility coming down front, receiving prayer, God opening their womb, and now they got two kids running around in kids' church right now. That's what our God does. People who overcome addictions, people who have overcome trauma in their life, who are now using that to become, to become psychologists in our church, to, be, to lead freedom ministries during the summer, to help other people go through the trauma and work through it in a healthy and a biblical way. It is a beautiful thing. It's the test that becomes the testimony. I love hearing stories about people in our church just getting set free and healed. It's a beautiful thing because the tests of our lives become the testimony of our lives. It is an opportunity to give God glory. And then lastly, number three, as we close in the bands, is this, is number three is this, is you need to declare victory over your giant. It's not enough for us to define it. It's not enough for us to defeat it but we also need to declare victory over the giants that are in our life. Here's how the story closes. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. David ran and stood over, and he stood over the Philistine sword. He drew it from a sheath, and he chopped off his head. He chopped off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword. Gangster, that's what I'm saying. But here's what I want you to understand something. Is that when he lifted up the head of Goliath, he was telling everyone who was witnessing, the giant has been defeated. And I told you I was going to present this to you in a different way. Thus far in this sermon, here's what I've explained to you. The historical ethical view. That you define it. You defeat it, you declare victory over it. But what I want to do as we close is I want to give you the historical redemptive view of David and Goliath. Because remember, Genesis through Revelation actually tells one giant story with Jesus being the hero. And here's why we call this sermon series the gospel according to David. Because it is the gospel message that Jesus is our greater David and Jesus slays and kills the giants that go before us. So the first time the word gospel is used is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, known as the Proto-Evangelium. And here's the message preached by God, is that from the seed of a woman will come one, and the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. That was a prophecy pointing towards the person and the work of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 19, it tells us of a king of kings and lord of lords who comes riding on a white horse to do battle with the dragon. He cuts off the throat of the dragon, crushes his head, and throws him into the lake of eternal fire. That is our Lord Jesus conquering the giant that stands before us. And here's Jesus, the shepherd, the one, the little one that no one expected, the one who comes from humility and obscurity, the one who people ostracized and rejected and said it could never be done, the one that no one chose. He comes and he lives the perfect life, the life without sin, the sin that we've committed was laid upon his shoulders and as he goes to the cross
cross, you better believe Satan was thinking, this little boy comes at me with sticks, with a cross. No, I am going to defeat him. I defy him. But when Jesus hung on that cross, bearing the weight of all of our sins, as he goes before us like the Israelites hiding on the side of a mountain, our King Jesus stands up and he runs and brings the battle to Goliath himself. And as he hangs upon that cross, the last words from our God, Jesus Christ, says, it is finished. The work is done. The battle is over. And the nails were the death blow that would crush the head of Satan. And here's what it means for us as believers. Is that on that day, what happened to Christ has happened for us. That because Jesus is victorious over sin, we can be victorious over the sins that are in our lives. You are not a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are not a victim. You are a victor and more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And so that means when it comes to your sin, when it comes to your temptation, when it comes to the oppression, when it comes to the situations in your life, you don't fight for victory. The victory has already been won. You fight from a position of victory. That's why we can have confidence. As believers, we have confidence in what our God has done. We don't fight for victory. We fight from a place of victory in our lives. And as I was praying for you this week, I believe there are many in this room who you need to have a victory in your life. You need a a battle under your belt. You need a win. You're facing temptations and giants. You're going in battle. So here's what I want to do. Two things as we close. Number one. The first battle you face is the battle of Satan, sin, hell, and the grave. And some of you, you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus today. So I'm going to give you a moment and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands and to confess and to give your life to Jesus by repenting of your sins and killing that first giant. And then second, there's others of you who have been plagued by giants for 40 days. They've come out, they've taunted you, they've tormented you morning and evening, and you need to defeat the giant, not to run from it. And so after we do the the salvation moment, we're going to do a deliverance moment. I'm going to open the altars. Our prayer team's going to come up, and I'm going to invite you to come forward for prayer. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you want Jesus to be your David, to go and to slay the Goliath of sin through repentance, and you want to be set free, you want to become a Christian and give your life to him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to count to three. And on three, I want you to raise your hand. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he is your great defender. And three, he wants to set you free. Raise your hand right now to give your life to Jesus. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As a church, let's celebrate what God is doing. Now, as a church, if y'all stand, if you'll stand with us. David ran towards the battle. If you're here and you're wrestling, I want you to run towards the altar right now. If you're here today and you got something going on in your life, you need victory, you need a win, you need a battle under your belt, you want freedom, you want to step out, don't run from your giant, run to your giant, and our church wants to celebrate with you. So if you're here today, I'm opening the altars, and you need prayer for anything, come forward right now. Step out in faith, step out in victory for your marriage, for your health, for your finances. Thank you, ma'am, thank you, yes. Let's give it up for those who are stepping out in faith. Thank you, thank you.